emotional after singing that song. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life, because y'all, there's no one else you need. He is sufficient and he is enough. And as I sang those lyrics, I thought, my goodness, this is me. I was on my own path, headed for hell, and then Jesus, by his grace, rescued me. Praise God. Let me ask you a question. Who was your hero growing up? For some, they wanted to hit like Jeter, sing like Adele, and shoot like Curry. Growing up, I would always pretend that I was Michael Jordan, which makes sense because we're similar in body type. (laughs) We both had our own trading cards. I, in fact, I, 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 I got one. I, in fact, I want, let me show you my trading card growing up as a kid, okay? You can see the similar, look at those biceps. I mean, we're just talking like, there's a lot of similarities between the two of us, right? You can see that. It's so obvious. Well, what is it inside of us that compels us to look up to famous people? I mean, what, why do we long to be like someone famous. I've been thinking about this week and I think that it's because deep down inside of us, there is a longing for Eden. We were designed, Genesis 2, to live in perfect unity and harmony with the famous one. We were made to look for a hero to admire. And I used to think, wouldn't it be cool if I could be in the inner circle with my heroes. Like if they just knew me by name and they invited me to spend time with them and to hang out with them, yes, they could keep their fame, but I could be in their inner circle. Well, when we get to Mark chapter three, we see the famous one, Jesus, whose fame is spreading and yet he calls upon 12 specific men to be in his inner circle. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to let you know we have a, out at the Connect Center on your way out this morning, we have a November prayer guide in which every day in the month of November, I want to invite our entire church to pray together. We're praying each day for a missionary from our church, a pastor in our church, a mission agency in our church. And so if you stop by the information center on your way out, you can grab one of those prayer guides. They'll also be available on our website on a PDF that you can grab hold of and we can pray together as a faith family this month. We're going through a sermon series called On the Move. We're, as a church, walking through the Gospel of Mark together. Now, the phrase on the move, I got that from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, spoiler alert, Aslan the Lion is a type of Christ. He is a figurehead that represents Jesus, and hope is spreading across Narnia because, as Mr. Beaver says with quiet confidence, Aslan is on the move. Those three words, on the move, describe what Jesus is doing throughout the Gospel of Mark. Throughout this fast-paced book, we see the Lord Jesus on the move. He's preaching the Gospel. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. 
Last week we saw Jesus declare that he is Lord of the Sabbath and that ultimate rest is found in him. Jesus then leaves the synagogue and that's where we pick up in Mark chapter three, beginning with verse seven. The scripture says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea and a large crowd followed from Galilee and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12. To Simon, he gave the name Peter, and to James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. As the momentum of Jesus' ministry continues to build, he fosters his influence with the crowds, and yet he intentionally and strategically forms his inner circle. And in the text, we see Jesus impacting thousands of people and building his core team of disciples. Notice in the text with me first, Jesus's fame has spread to the thousands. Jesus's fame has spread to the thousands. Jesus has left Capernaum and his five confrontations with the religious leaders, and he makes his way towards the Sea of Galilee. And as he's walking towards the sea, verse seven, a large crowd followed. Note the disparity between the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus, verse six, and the crowds who absolutely loved him, verse seven. And these people have come from long distances to encounter Jesus. And then Mark gives us seven geographic locations of various origins of the crowd. He lists, verse 7, Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. Judea, which is the southern region of Israel. Verse 8, Jerusalem, which is the largest city at that time. It's 80 miles south of where he's located. Idumea, which is 120 miles in the deep south of Israel. Beyond the Jordan, which is the region of the Jews, I'm sorry, the region of the Gentiles who are non-Jews, who've come from about 50 miles away to the east. Then you've got Tyre and Sidon, which are cities on the Mediterranean coast, about 55 miles to the northwest. So to give you a feel of the distances of verses seven and eight, for those of you who paid attention in fourth grade Alabama geography, where you sit now at Westwood, Here's where we're gonna go. Galilee is like Shelby County. Judea is Montgomery County. Jerusalem is the city of Montgomery. Idumea is Troy. Beyond the Jordan is Pell City. Tyre and Sidon is between Hueytown and Jasper. Okay, so you've got the picture. People are coming from miles 
around. Thousands upon thousands of people are flocking here to Galilee because they want to encounter Jesus. So you can picture it. Verse eight, they have heard about everything he was doing. The fame of Jesus was spreading far and wide throughout Israel and even to other nations. And so thousands upon thousands of Jews and Gentiles, they want to see their children healed. They want to see their grandma cured. They want to see demons cast out of their cousins. They just, some just want to see the show of the miracle worker from Nazareth. But the crowd is so great, verse nine, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Have you ever been on an elevator where there are so many people you feel claustrophobic? Or maybe you've been in a, it's a large crowd of people that's so numerous, whether it's at a stadium or at a concert, and you're just, you're almost being crushed because there's so many people around you. And you can imagine that a, a crowd that you're sitting, that you're standing in something like this up on the, on the screen, a picture. Could you imagine being in that? Not only are you in a sea of people, but you're being pushed you're being trampled over because people are trying to touch you. They're pushing, they're shoving because they're trying to touch you. That's verses nine and 10. Those of you who don't like physical touch, verse nine, this is your nightmare. <laughs> I mean, talk about mayhem. This is crazy. The fame of Jesus is so great. Thousands of people are flocking to touch him, which is why verse nine, he tells his disciples to get a getaway boat. Now you can imagine the smells and the blood and the bodily discharge and the leprosy of those who are stretching out their diseased hands in order to touch Jesus. Because verse 10, since Jesus had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. These people were desperate. This week I went and spent some time at the home of a Westwood member and her husband, and she is homebound. She is uh, stuck in a bed. She's physically unable to get out of bed anymore. And she told me, Pastor, there are some days I'm in so much pain, I just want to scream and cry. And I had such compassion for her as I prayed over her because she is desperate for healing. Well, that's exactly how these people feel in verses nine and 10. They're desperate for Jesus. They are tired of suffering. They are ready to be set free from the bondage that they are experiencing. And so they are pushing and shoving and crowding Jesus just so that they might touch him. And yet this is the power of Jesus, that if someone just touched him, they were healed of their suffering. Now, some of these people only wanted to draw near to Jesus for his miraculous power. That's the sad part of ministry. Question, do you follow Jesus because of what he can do for you or because you love him? You see, one of the dangers of the health and wealth gospel that you come to Jesus just to get something is that it turns people into consumers, not disciples. And what we see here is that there are some who are pressing in, trying to touch Jesus so that they can be healed. And yet Jesus knows their heart. One of the saddest verses in all of the Bible is John chapter 6, verse 66, 
where after Jesus has fed the 5,000 and they're following him around, trying to get dinner and a show, it says that many no longer followed him. Why? Because he began talking about the call to be a disciple. And the closer Jesus got to the cross, the more people walked away. But to follow Jesus means that you are ready to suffer and to endure persecution because you're following him as a disciple. You're not coming to him like he's a genie. You're coming to him because he's the savior. And yet here he is. He is still healing people who aren't interested in him. They just want his power. And on top of all of this chaos, look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. The demons knew who Jesus was. He is the son of God. Hear me, Jesus is Lord and has authority over Satan and all of the demons. They panic, they fear, they shudder in his presence. The crowds loved him and the demons are terrified of him. His power and authority were greater than sickness, greater than disease, greater than demons, and the crowds are growing. The fame has spread to the thousands. Yet in the midst of all of this commotion, Jesus had a bigger plan in mind. And he desires the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. How is he going to do that? With 12 Ordinary men. I want you to see number two, Jesus' call to summon the 12. We see a change of scenery in verse 13, where Jesus has gone from the thousands by the sea to the 12 on a mountain. The text says that Jesus summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, according to Luke's gospel account, Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he called the 12. Now remember, he already at this point has called Peter and Andrew, James and John from chapter one. He's already called Matthew from chapter two. Now Jesus is spending the night praying with his father before selecting the final seven for his team. Now today, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's due in part because of who Jesus summoned on this mountain. These men would lead the church, preach the gospel, protect the gospel. They would plant churches. They preached and then someone believed and then someone else believed and then someone else believed. And here we are 2,000 years later, you and I, we have believed this gospel that someone has told us and now through us, the gospel will keep marching forward to the four corners of the earth, to generations yet to have been born through our faithfulness to Jesus and willingness to preach the gospel to those around us. If Jesus tarries for the next 2,000 years, we are a part of a movement that cannot be stopped. God is at work, and here Jesus calls the 12. Yet don't miss the imagery of verse 16. Jesus appointed 12. Why 12? Well, remember, Jesus was intentional. Jesus who is the true Israel, 
is calling 12 disciples, which is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Just as the Lord led the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, we see the Lord leading the 12 disciples in the New Testament. And these 12 disciples, he also named, verse 14, apostles. Now, the word apostle, it means one sent out on a mission. Now, there are two types of apostles in the New Testament. Now, this is important. There is the office of apostle and the task of apostle. And it's important that we distinguish between the two. The first is the office of the apostle. This was designated for the 12. When Judas Iscariot died, he was replaced in Acts 1 with Matthias. And he assumed the office of the apostle. The office of apostle was reserved for those who met four requirements. They had to see visibly the risen Christ. They had to be chosen by the Holy Spirit. They had to perform miracles and wonders. And they, had, they were responsible for laying the foundation of the church. Now, the apostle Paul, he would be added later because he would meet all four requirements. In fact, he calls himself in 1 Corinthians 15, one untimely born. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles and and unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But now that the apostles have died, the office of apostle is closed. If someone today claims to have the authority of a New Testament apostle, run. They're lying. That office has been closed. There are no new apostles. And yet the New Testament also talks about apostles where it is a task. Yes, there are those of the office, but then there's the task of the apostle. We see this in the book of Acts where Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Why? Because he is a missionary. He is a sent out one preaching the gospel. Well, in the text, we see Jesus gives a threefold job description for the 12. Verse 14, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. For three years, they lived with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They slept with Jesus. They watched Jesus. They ministered alongside Jesus. Jesus was training them to how, for how to lead so that when the time came for him to ascend back to the Father, they'd know exactly what to do. It would be their responsibility to pass on the faith. So notice in the text these 12 men that Jesus called. We see here the list in verse 16. He appointed the 12 to Simon. He gave the name Peter. And to James, the son of Zebedee. And his brother John, he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. In all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, when the apostles are listed, Simon Peter is always listed first. He was given the name Peter or Rock by Jesus when he gave the great confession that Jesus is the Christ at Caesarea Philippi. The first group of three, Peter, James, and John. Of all the 12, 
these three were the closest to Jesus. They got to go up on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured before their eyes into his glorified body. These were the three who got to go with Jesus and pray with him in the garden of Gethsemane. So these inner three got special access because they had a special relationship with Jesus in comparison with the other nine. James and John, they're given the nickname Sons of Thunder, probably because of their fiery temperament. They were hotheads. And yet Jesus was able to tame them. When you think about John, the writer of the Gospel of John, the one who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, eventually he became known as the disciple of love. How can he go from being a son of thunder, quick to anger, to being a disciple of love, Jesus. Jesus changes us. We're different when you encounter the risen Christ. So as we walk through the gospels, we see different disciples stepping in in different scenes, but there's others that we don't know a whole lot about. But what are, what are some takeaways from the 12? I put in your notes three truths to discover from the 12. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Jesus uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. When Jesus picked his 12, he didn't pick the wealthy. He didn't pick the strongest. He didn't pick the smartest. He didn't pick the most influential. Rather, he chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose those who are not to shame those who are. You see, Jesus does not pick the guys who graduated at the top of their class. He didn't pick the best looking. He didn't pick those who went to seminary. Here Jesus chose fishermen, tax collectors, political activists. Hear me, you don't need to be smart. You don't need to be beautiful. You don't need to be wealthy for Jesus to use you. You don't have to have the New Testament memorized in order for God to use your life. Don't ever let the enemy lie to you and say that you're disqualified from being used by God because the Lord chose 12 men who had nothing to boast in. In fact, in Acts chapter four, verse 13, it says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and watch this, and realized that they were uneducated, and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do not think that because of your past or because of your insufficiencies or your idiosyncrasies or the foolish choices that you have made disqualify you from God using you. God used a stuttering Moses to preach to the most powerful Pharaoh in the world. God used a donkey to preach to an ungodly prophet. God chose 12 ordinary, uneducated men who have changed the world. God can use you. Make yourself available to him. Declare with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, here am I, send me. Not only does Jesus have the power and the authority to use the ordinary, to do the extraordinary, but I want you to see number two, Jesus turns enemies into friends. Jesus turns enemies into friends. Remember back in chapter two how Jesus called Matthew? He was a tax collector. Tax collectors, they were loyal to the Roman government. They saw their partnership with Rome as a way to extort money. 
Zealots were Jewish nationalists. They wanted to free Israel. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They would fight, whether by revolution or by riot, to get rid of the Roman Empire. So Matthew, the tax collector, who's pro-Rome, is now on the same team as Simon the Zealot, who's anti-Rome. Can you see the conflict? These guys are political opponents. They drastically differ on their views of the government. Can you imagine the campfire political arguments between the disciples? Jesus probably sitting back, shaking his head, like, I can't believe I picked these guys. I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I look at the political rants on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm like, I can't believe that this is where we are. And yet Jesus chose them intentionally. And through Jesus, those who are opponents become friends. Westwood, can I say to you, Democrats are not the enemy. Republicans are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And so let's make sure that we're not tearing down relationships that Jesus has ordained for our good. So Jesus has the ability and the power and the authority to take the ordinary and do the extraordinary. He is able to turn enemies into friends, but I want you to see number three. Jesus' resurrection turns scaredy cats into bold lions. After Jesus was crucified in John 20, verse 19, the disciples gathered together behind a locked door fearing the Jews. They're terrified for their lives. We are going to die. But after they saw the resurrected Christ, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm, everything changed. They went from hiding to boldly, publicly, unashamedly preaching Jesus. Acts 4.31 says they were speaking the word of God boldly. What changed? The resurrection. They knew that because the tomb was empty, they no longer had to fear. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God. And so when the Holy Spirit falls on them in Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel and thousands come to faith in Christ. There's a boldness that takes place. They went from being fearful, they were scaredy cats, to bold lions. And from that point forward, they were willing to take this gospel to the ends of the earth and even be ready and willing to lay down their lives for it. According to church tradition, Simon Peter ended up in Rome. And according to church historian Origen, he was crucified upside down seeming it unworthy to die in the same manner as his savior. James, the son of Zebedee, ends up in Jerusalem, and according to Acts chapter 12, he was killed with the sword by Herod Agrippa. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is where the book of Revelation was revealed to him, in which he wrote it down. He would end up in Ephesus, and he is the only disciple who died a natural death. Andrew ended up in Greece, and he was crucified. Philip ended up in Turkey, where he was tortured to death. 
Bartholomew traveled throughout Asia, North Africa, preaching the gospel. Matthew ended up in Ethiopia, where he was stabbed to death. Thomas ended up in India, where he was speared to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, ended up in Syria, where he was stoned and clubbed to death. Thaddeus was killed and buried in modern-day Iran. Simon the Zealot ended up in Persia, where he was beaten to death. Matthias, Judas Iscariot's replacement, ended up in Syria, where he was burned to death. The Apostle Paul ended up in Rome, where he was beheaded. What took these men from hiding to going to the nations and ready and willing to give their lives? It ain't for a lie. No one dies for a lie. These men gave their lives for the truth. Jesus was and is alive. And yes, what Jesus does. When you encounter him, he changes you, he begins to use you, and the gospel goes forth. Westwood, the tomb is empty, which means that not even death itself can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tomb's empty. The apostles have laid the foundation upon the chief cornerstone, King Jesus, and God used 12 ordinary men to change the world. Jesus took these men on a mountain in Mark chapter three and threw them with sort of movement called the church that cannot and will not be stopped. Jesus promised in Matthew 18, Matthew 16, 18, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you stand in a courtroom, in a boardroom or in homeroom, you can be as bold as a lion because the tomb is empty. I think that's worth celebrating. Isn't it interesting here how Jesus knows and calls each of them by name? When persecution began against Christians in Acts chapter 7, at the death of Stephen, believers ran for their lives. You get to Acts chapter 8 verse 4, it says that they were scattered about and they went about preaching the gospel. Don't miss this. The church has advanced throughout history because of the faithful witness of millions of anonymous Christ followers. We don't have their names written in scripture. Their names are not written in history books. They're, they're not celebrated on the silver screen, but make no mistake, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus knows their names. And may I say to you, beloved, Jesus knows your name. And if you are in Christ, you may not be remembered by this world 2,000 years from now, but Jesus will remember you. He knows your name. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows the moment of your death. And you have nothing to be afraid of. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Do you see it? All right, so what's the impact point? Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? I want you to got this from the text. Number one, you're in the impact point. You are summoned by Jesus. You are wanted by Jesus. And you are sent by Jesus. Jesus went up the mountain, verse 13. He summoned those he wanted because Jesus would later go up another mountain where he would die for you 
And it is there through the shed blood of Jesus on Mount Calvary's cross that Jesus would summon you. Why? Because he wants you. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. You are wanted. Jesus wants you. Yes, Jesus loves you. But he also wants you. That's what the text says. He summons those whom he wanted. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has summoned you. He has called you because he wants you. He wants you on his team. And the beauty of following Jesus, who is the greatest of heroes, is he knows your name. And he invites you to be on his team. All of us in this room, if we voiced who our heroes used to be or even who they are today, they don't know our names. They don't care about us. We're not part of their story. And yet, when you get to the hero, the true hero we've been made to find in Genesis 2, King Jesus, he knows your name. He knows your story. And he invites you into his inner circle, his family called the church. And the church can never be stopped. So as we march forth from this campus today, march forth knowing that Jesus summons you, he wants you, and he is sending you to go and tell the good news of the gospel.